Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. It's Wednesday, 4th of May. Uh, we had a, a longer weekend in Poland. That's why we released this podcast only in the middle of the week. But with plenty going on and uh, excellent uh, reporting on with the news and, and trends from the region, as well as monthly foresight in the latter part of this episode, uh, the author of which is Paweł Havlicek, Marcin Krul, Visegrad Insight Fellow. He's a researcher from Prague, uh, affiliated at the, at the International Association um, uh, uh, Association for International Affairs, AMO. Uh, but before we, we have a conversation with him, uh, uh, Miles Maftin is uh, here with me and he Uh, he asks uh, all the difficult and important questions uh, to, to, to Pavel. Let's go with a brief of, of the important stuff this week. Um, and let me begin maybe shortly uh, with, with the highlight uh, that we, we looked at the region from the point of view of media freedom. World Press Freedom Index uh, has been released, the 20th edition. I've been often referring to that to see and monitor trends regarding journalism. We have also published uh, information sovereignty trends in Central Europe, uh, the quests uh, about you know, economic performance of journalism across Central Europe that, that seems to be somehow interestingly correlated in all different forms. Um, and, and you can, of course, uh, look it up on our, on our site. It's a report from... Um, to, from November 2021, Diverging Paths of Journalism in Central Eastern Europe. Um, that seems to be confirming interesting patterns. While Poland is going down two points from in the ranking from 64th place to down to 66, Hungary is going a little bit up. It's still the lowest ranked uh, country in in the V4. Uh, it went up from the 92nd to 85th position in, um, in the global ranking. And it correlates with the report I mentioned uh, just a bit with a surge of journalism uh, that you can observe in, in Hungary. So despite, I mean, bad news is good news in journalism. That's, that's how we could perhaps explain that. But in our study that I mentioned uh, from November, this is actually the eye catcher. Uh, the Hungary is not doing so bad when it comes to the number of people who actually, uh, you know, uh, earn uh, money from being journalists, from delivering news. Also, Czech uh, Republic went up by um, 20 ranks up uh, from for, uh, 40th position to, to 20th. And also Slovakia, nearly 10 points up, uh, 10, uh, 10 ranks up from uh, 35 to 27, which is a big jump, if you think, uh, in, in, in also in global terms, and uh, shows that not, not all is lost in Central Europe, especially Czech, uh, Slo Czech Republic and Slovakia are doing quite fine. So this is an item of one of the items in the outlook part, In the, in the weekly review of, um, of our publication that we released today. Uh, the first part is introduced by Pavel Havlicek. Uh, the, the other item I might just flash out really briefly is, is the fact that the uh, European Parliament voted in favor to 
to to have a pan-European list of uh, candidates for the next uh, EP uh, elections, European parliamentary elections. And there will be 28 in total uh, that we can vote for and that they can uh, they can be elected from from a pan-European list, which I think will open doors for new possibilities in this and upcoming elections and likely we will see with all that's happening and with the future of Europe uh, uh, conference in a, in a spotlight also in in May, um, a lot of discussion, a lot of push for even more um, uh, a European public sphere um, that starts also with representatives. But that's me and Miles. You've been working hard on on both on on the outlook and also editing and, and guiding Pavel Havlicek's writing. Um, so what do you think is, is, is noteworthy also of the, of the weekly outlook part? Well, I think that Pavel and I go really specifically into, into the Eastern Partnership. We talk about the Future of Europe conference. So I think from my end, it's probably best to stay regional and to stick with, with the EU level. So as we know, the European Union right now, it's, it's actually continuing to prepare uh, a set of sanctions against Russian energy. And this is obviously topically really big um, with what is actually happening in Ukraine. Interestingly, Hungary and Slovakia uh, are essentially saying that it's not going to support any sort of ban. And this is due to the fact that, as we know, they're extremely reliant on these supplies, it's extremely reliant on, on Russian oil, and there is no immediate alternatives. So th no, with no immediate alternatives available, this is kind of the position that they're in, despite the fact that Viktor Orban does have something more substantive onto this with his, quote, friendship with Putin. But when you kind of look at Slovakia in this instance, there really is this idea that with nothing immediate to replace it, what are we to really do, right? So this is this is very interesting, and I think that that's something that we need to continue to keep an eye on. Um, but apart from that, there's also been news from the European Commission kind of in conjunction with this, that President Ursula von der Leyen, she, she said that she backs a financial package that would essentially help rebuild uh, Ukraine and it will help sort of reshape its economy once the war with Russia actually ends. And a lot of a lot of what we hear is in relation to defense, so aid, financial aid or humanitarian aid, but what of the actual economic consequences, the drastic um, rebuilding that the country will actually have to do after these atrocities. This is something that everybody is sort of keeping an eye out. There haven't been really specifics on what's been reported, but it is interesting that this comes at a time after U.S. President Joe Biden asked lawmakers in the U.S. to, to approve $8.5 billion for economic support for, for Ukraine. So th this is certainly something on the more pan-European level that we're keeping an eye out because it kind of factors directly into a lot of what Pavel and I talk about in terms of just the security focus uh, that's going to be on the docket for, for the EU. Yeah, and there is a lot of talk uh, in, in the neighboring countries how much this will reshape Central Europe as it is part of the European Union. 
because of this, on one hand, the effort to rebuild and the resources put in place and uh, work power, uh, also potentially moving to rebuild Ukraine. And then who's going to build all the roads that are right. still missing in Central Eastern Europe? Um, that's the question mark. That's a discussion. This is not actually something I would worry about myself. And I, we don't put so much emphasis on that in Central Europe, but we monitor that discussion. And also from last week, we highlight uh, that the trends in, um, in disinformation in social media that we reported on are also slowly changing to the, the disadvantage of, of Ukraine after initial hype in, in, in enthusiasm right. and so on. Um, and support and sympathy, we are starting to see some worrying trends on the discussions of, you know, uh, th that will heavily rely on, on how strategic communication is being done. That, uh, that, that upkeeps also the democratic uh, support for, for the efforts both to defend Ukraine and Europe uh, and to rebuild Ukraine and have it have it on its way to to join and become part of the European Union. So this is this is really big, something I think we'll be uh, definitely coming back to. Um, and, and maybe uh, one point about this uh, sanction list and Slovakia and Hungary indeed are in the proposal by the Commission uh, exempted from uh, the obligation to, to put sanctions on oil. Um, but they're coming from two different positions. I mean, Hungary really is unwilling and seeks uh, to damage uh, even uh, chances of, of Ukraine to prevail. Uh, and we have even Polish, new Polish ambassador coming to Budapest with a big poster campaign, stop war, stop Russian war in Ukraine. Right. I don't think he's he's receiving a very warm welcome, despite he, he just put these posters in front of the Budapest parliament, parliament in Budapest. And there is Slovakia, where, where we also write about in the weekly outlook, uh, has just uh, signed a contract to, um, to repair equipment, military equipment uh, of, of Ukraine, That's right. uh, Ukrainian army. And to do it in Moldova, uh, Slovaks are going to do that. And uh, it has also been exempting um, Ukrainian trade from tariffs when crossing through Slovakia. So there is a, there is a, comp so, so there, <laughs> I think it's, it's strange for us, I guess, to put Slovakia and Hungary the same, in the same uh, bag. Yeah. I mean, it does obviously make sense when you, when you're writing or you see these headlines, you just automatically assume Hungary and Slovakia, but you see the actual actions that Slovakia has in, in this regard. So entirely different. And we'll see if they pass after after today's meeting of uh, EU ambassadors in, in, in Brussels when um, when the, the final decisions will be uh, shaped by the governments of, of member states. All right, I think that's it for, uh, for the preview. Let's go to the interview with Paweł Havlicek. It's 2nd of May, 2022. I'm here with Pavel Havlicek. Pavel is a Marcin Kroll Fellow here at Visegrad Insights, and he's also a Research Fellow at the Association for International Affairs Research Center in Prague. So a large portion of his research actually focuses on Eastern Europe, especially Ukraine and, and Russia, but specifically the Eastern Partnership as well. And these are precisely the topics which we're going to focus on today. So we're looking ahead this week on what we're publishing at, at Visegrad Insight. And of course, this will include a monthly foresight, which we'll touch briefly upon, but 
the recent news in, in Moldova and in Transnistria sort of begs the question of what will happen to the Eastern Partnership that has been built and sustained for, for so many years now. So as we know, the EU has been its Eastern Partnership policy since 2009. Um, this crisis has certainly dealt a particular blow to it. The goals of the partnership were, were mostly for economic integration and EU membership track, put very briefly. So I guess what I wanted to do is start with a easier point. So Pavel, if you could tell us what you believe is the most important dimension on the partnership right now, that would probably be a good start. This is actually a very good question because the partnership is uh, facing so many challenges at multiple levels. You know, you already spoke about uh, uh, about the Russian aggression vis-a-vis uh, -vis Ukraine. Uh, the aggression is actually uh, continuing in in Moldova very much. You know, and uh, you have touched upon the issue of Transnistria. Uh, Georgia was also not saved really from from the pressure. There were some announcement. Uh, and very sharp rhetoric vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the, the separatist entities, Abkhazia and uh, uh, also uh, uh, South Ossetia, uh, but also obviously the other countries um, uh, such as Belarus, you know, which has suspended its its uh, participation in the Eastern Partnership and uh, the two remaining, Azerbaijan and Armenia, which actually at the beginning of the Russian war against Ukraine uh, stepped up once again their military activities. So you can see that the whole region and the whole policy is really on fire. And now there's a lot of uh, rethinking on the side of the EU, how to go forward, you know, just on uh, uh, December, uh, the, the Eastern Partnership had its uh, most recent summit and it announced a complete reshuffle in terms of priorities. It determined five priorities all wrapped up uh, around the idea of resilience, which would be in five different areas, economic one, digital, green, uh, good governance, but also uh, one related to security so, so, and uh, humanitarian aspects. You know, These are all very well positioned uh, uh, priorities, but now obviously uh, when facing the, the war uh, in, in the, the wider region, this is something that uh, hardly actually sustain itself so now we are really we really need to collect connect the dots and put things together and maybe also if possible during this crisis management moment try to think bigger and more strategically what's next for the region that's a very great point so we hear a lot about resilience right it's kind of one of those terms that is an all-encompassing term but i think it does have really specific policy implications particularly when you think of the security crisis that not only is happening now, but has been essentially happening since, well, from my perspective, happening since the cyber attacks in, in Estonia uh, earlier in the 2000s, all the way to, of course, what we've seen in Georgia, um, as you spoke about. And, you know, we always think what is happening on the EU level as well, right? So when we look, does the actual Russian aggression impact EU thinking about some of its sort of long-standing political processes and traditional method of operations. So not only this, but what does this actually mean more specifically to the Eastern Partnership? I think the implications are really profound. Uh, if you have a look at the, for example, the five guiding principles of the EU vis-a-vis -vis its policy on, on Russia, uh, this is all really, uh, you know, buried down, you know, it's, it's, it's non-existent anymore. Uh, now something new will, will need to emerge after the war ends. Uh, now uh, the one principle that is remaining is the, the principle 
people related to the Eastern partners and uh, actually uh, 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 sort of their strong support, you know. So this is something that uh, is left from one of the crucial uh, foreign policy uh, guidelines that the EU had uh, vis-a-vis the, the external, um, uh, basically, uh, actors, you know. Um, another one that is quite important, and you can see, and this well illustrates how far the EU tra- thinking has changed, you know, is for example related to the so-called European uh, Peace Facility, which is a um, uh, financial instrument which is for the first time in the EU's history supporting the, the fin- financially supporting actually the military aid to Ukraine. This is for the first time ever. So you see that the, you can see that there's really some fundamental uh, shifts and uh, thinking. Uh, on the side of uh, European external relations. And this applies very much to the region of Eastern Europe, to Russia, but also most prominently uh, to Ukraine. So now, um, obviously, this has also led us to... um, Sort of a cross uh, crossroads moment because at the beginning of the war uh, in the in, in case of Ukraine on the twenty eighth of February, and um, it, from from Moldovan and Georgian perspective, this was on the third of March. All three countries, the so called associated trio countries, submitted their EU uh, EU accession accession bid. You know the membership uh, bid. You know so so this is something that is also uh, quite uh, turbulently actually interfering uh, within the existing. EU use uh, uh, basically logic uh, vis-a-vis the Eastern Partnership, which was always a policy, as you said yourself, um, on economic integration, political affiliation, but not really something that would lead directly and very much straightforward to the uh, enlargement and also the next step, uh, the EU membership. You know, This is something that the EU has very much uh, dedicated to the Western Balkans and only some of them because of uh, some 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 problems you know within the, the other regional framework you know so here obviously there's a lot of rethinking also along these lines and uh, um, also um, you know new political momentum frankly speaking because uh, if if uh, basically before the 24th of February nobody would really believe that EU would be seriously considering European uh, application from from Ukraine or Georgia Moldova you know, this is now uh, a new a new normal, and the EU member states actually uh, very uh, um, sort of delicately, but endorse these you know uh, aspirations and very much said yes, this is something that we will be looking into. Even further from the European institutions, if you if you have a look at the rhetoric of, for example, uh, uh, the president of the European Commission Ursula von der Leyen, she was actually saying, look, you know, we will dedicate a special uh, sort of fast track procedure. Um, uh, to uh, to Ukraine, and we will do everything possible to move with the membership assessment and the ap- application assessment as soon as this will be possible. So so already, and this is something that I'm uh, jumping a little bit forward with uh, to the monthly uh, forecast. Uh, this might be actually an item on the European uh, Council agenda for the twenty twenty third and twenty fourth of June. So this is something that will be staying with us for the for for a foreseeable future but is well illustrating the new logic within the EU foreign policy thinking. I'm just thinking off off of the fly here and a question that I have just hearing this and something that has certainly lingered uh, for me. You have this fast track to EU membership with Ukraine, but then you have on the other side of this, you have Serbia, right? Um who essentially has been doing tons and continuously can, does a lot and, and knows that, you know, there's a certain track to EU membership, follows those steps very rigidly. 
maybe the actual hmm, the way that the EU assesses it is a, a little bit different, right? Because we do have um, we do have this this tragedy that's happening here. Just a quick question, and you can think about it a little bit more, maybe. And this is something to to think about in terms of foresight and scenarios that we're drawing. Do you see any sort of two parts, any animosity from the side of, of from the Serbian side here? That's essentially saying, "Hey, we've been <laughs> we've been doing this for years now, right?" And all of a sudden, this is you know a very different scenario for another country, which of course had its own sort of EU aspirations, but it was dealing more with the security issues that it had and, and dealt really specifically with this. That's one part. And then the second part is what does this actually mean for sort of EU processes, right? You have the extraordinary that happens here. And from our side, you kind of want to see that EU membership and EU accession is something that is very rigidly thought through, but then you have the extraordinary that's happening here. So two parts here. Yes, absolutely. As for the first one, you know, the competition is clearly there. It is a competition for political attention. It is a competition for resources very, very prominently. And it is also a competition with the traditional track versus the fast track, you know, that is, was at least uh, rhetorically promised to Ukrainian uh, U- Ukrainians, uh, you know, when facing the conflict from from Russia. So, so here, uh, this is very much uh, in place, and I would even say that uh, countries such as. Um, uh, for example, Montenegro, which has not been so uh, so ambivalent about the the next steps, you know, when when playing uh, with with Russian and Chinese cards, you know. But for Montenegro, there has been pretty much one track policy, you know, not not a multiple multi vectoral uh, dimension to it. Same goes for Albania and North Macedonia, which have waited for uh, an uh, endorsement from the European members, you know, of the accession talks for a very long time, you know, and this was just a political impasse from the side of Bulgaria vis-a-vis North Macedonia that actually blocked both of the countries you know, to even start and open these accession talks. So, so here and, and now you have the three newcomers you know, that are trying to compete for this attention and for, so for resources on diff- from different sides. Here, uh, obviously, there is very much uh, animosity and there is so much of uh, quite, quite strong rhetoric, you know, mostly so far behind the scenes towards uh, the European institutions and the member states, but uh, the, this tension has been very much, very much there. And also, and this uh, leads me to the second part of the question, actually. You have, uh, the, as I mentioned, one of the competitions. This is the competition with the uh, traditional bureaucratic uh, stand, standpoints and uh, procedures, which uh, would normally be in place. And what took uh, Serbia in, in, uh, in, I think, 1990s still, um, or early 2000s years, if if not like months, you know, then for Ukraine, this was a fast track to, to several weeks, you know. So th- this has very much speeded the process. And uh, to, to some other countries, this actually, uh, uh, you know, brought them thinking, okay, so are we doing that just from the purely political logic or do we want to stick to the merits and our own rules of the procedure? And here, obviously, the question of the Russian war is very much shaping this kind of, uh, uh, um, uh, approach, you know, that he would normally have towards the three countries. Now everything has been elevated, you know, uh, politically speaking, to a completely different 
level of debate than uh, we used to know it from the Western Balkans. So here, this is another dimension to it, but also this is part of the competition that you hinted on yourself when asking the question about Serbia and others. This kind of brings us to the second part here. So I, I know that this month you're the author of the, the Monthly Foresight, and one part of it, which we've discussed, is this sort of Eastern partnership. You know, one question, obviously, what is the way forward here? But we do have a lot of highlights uh, that maybe you can share with our listeners, some of the highlights that you kind of see shaping what's going to be very important come May. Yes. So so there are a couple of moments, you know, that will brought us basically to the European Council in the in the second part of June that I already referred to. Now there is a lot of work and discussion actually happening among the European member states, but also the EU institutions. They are supposed to the Commission is supposed to deliver its assessment of the first uh, phase of the uh, the questionnaire that was shared with the three countries at and then which actually uh, all three delivered already uh, several days ago. So now there is this sort of bureaucratic exercise, but uh, uh, beneath this, actually, there is uh, there are very severe po political battles and discussions among the member states how to actually perceive this process as we as we hinted on this already and how to position themselves uh, closer as as the European Council in the on the twenty third and twenty fourth of uh, June actually approaches us. So so this is something that you know uh, there are you can imagine battles between the the countries from Central Eastern Europe and also from from northern part of Europe, you know, such as Sweden and others, you know, versus some of the uh, traditionally more skeptical countries, such as the Netherlands, you know, France, or also Germany, Austria, maybe Austria was one of the countries that actually officially mentioned that we should be thinking out of box, uh, offering some other form of closer relations with, with Ukraine, rather than going into open accession and given the candidacy status to, to all three of the countries. So here, there is a lot of discussions, right? Right now happening, you know, under under the surface uh, behind the the, the 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 closed doors, and I think we will we will only see a little bit later what what happened next. Uh, also, and this is very important, we already uh, spoke about this briefly to see the wider context, you know, and this is so much determined by the by the Russian war, not only. Uh, on Ukraine, but also on other countries, you know, some of the military planners and generals from the Russian side actually announced that the ultimate goal is not only to take uh, the, the, the control of the east of Ukraine, the so-called Donbass region, but also the southern southern flank of Ukraine all the way to, to Transnistria. And this was uh, this was uh, obviously uh, a major blow, you know, and the first very direct threat to, 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 to Moldova, of, of which uh, the Transnistrian separatist entity is still the Jure part of, you know. So here, obviously, you would see that the, the war determines so much and um, uh, one of the key milestones of it, you know, it's actually the 9th of May, um, which is a traditional festivity in, 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 in Russia. It is uh, highly politicized, you know, and highly watched event, uh, during which there are many uh, assessments and, and expert opinions that there will be some big announcement. It will be certainly to recap and actually summarize some of the results which have already been achieved by uh, by by more than two months of the the great the the the, the, the greatest war uh, in Europe uh, since 1945. But actually, uh, 
many assessments go beyond that and they even say that there might be actually uh, maybe uh, an open uh, act of uh, sort of uh, announcement of the act of war against Ukraine which is something we have not seen uh, in a very long time and also this why this would be important is that this could be a way to open up the po- possibility of the general mobilization inside of the Russian Federation which is a very political sensitive act you know because it reminds the society of the, the the soviet times and the soviet invasion of afghanistan which is a very turbulent which was a very turbulent moment for for the soviet union which was one of the factors which actually, which actually brought soviet union to its collapse together with the economic uh, uh, sort of insufficiency and default. But uh, the war against uh, Afghanistan was one of the sensitive moments. And this might be yet another moment of uh, of this sort, you know. So so there are still only, we can be only guessing if Vladimir Putin is going to announce uh, uh, the, the war launch, official war against Ukraine, not this so-called special military operations, but uh, one part of it, and this would be uh, having a very profound implication for the next course of events, would be uh, sort of the general mobilization inside of the Russian society, which would bring the uh, uh, missing resources uh, when when facing uh, Ukrainians in the Donbass, but also in the southern part of Ukraine. So here, this is another of the flagship moments. But we are speaking, uh, I'm speaking to you from, uh, from Prague, you know, one of the capitals that is going to be uh, elevated uh, to the uh, to the forefront of the EU foreign policy making and EU making in general uh, on the 1st of July Czechia is going to take over uh, the the EU presidency but before that already um, uh, we are facing also some of the internal European processes and this is certainly the conference on the future of Europe which of which uh, announcement will be uh, on the 8th of uh, 8th of May, this is the Europe Day, and also this will be a moment when uh, the French President Emmanuel Macron wants to actually uh, announce, you know, the results of, of the conference and also sort of position himself within the European uh, debates and processes, the next future uh, of the European continent. You know, these, these will be all uh, uh, things on the agenda, you know, Ukraine included of the big conference, you know, and, and obviously, uh, but obviously, and this is why the Czech presidency here matters a lot, much of the implementation of these processes, even if the uh, sort of political announcement you know, on the 8th of May, will be going towards the Czech EU presidency. So, so here, this is something that will be relevant and staying with us for the foreseeable future, even if we will have the big announcement already uh, within uh, the next couple of days on the 8th of May. And I'm genuinely uh, interested in what are all the items that will actually go to the agenda of uh, the French president because, and this is why it matters, uh, the French uh, president has uh, won the competition for for the next couple of years, but clearly uh, there are fears that the within the, the parliamentary dimension of the uh, still ongoing campaign, there might be some severe blow, blows to his uh, presidency uh, position so he needs to uh, capture this European moment, and actually, he wants to position himself as a sort of, uh, sort of the, the king of the EU policy making, also uh, for his uh, political gains uh, that will be that will be necessary for the June parliamentary elections, still before the Czech presidency.
even begins. So I think these are some of the highlights of the next months or two. And uh, yeah, I will be very happy that uh, if you if you uh, give it a good treat and it will be you will be following what's next. Thank you.